Warning. World Worry Podcast occasionally discusses mature themes and uses colorful language. Morning, Apocalypse Plumbing. This is Stacy speaking. How can I help? Uh, good morning, Stacy. Yes, what a fine morning it is. Uh, except that I have seemed to have gotten myself into a bit of a pickle. You see, the entire downstairs of my home is flooded, and I desperately need one of your plumbing wizards to come and take a look. Now, the thing is, I may have accidentally released a goblin hybrid in my home. Um, I, I was keeping it in the bathroom in an enchanted cage, of course, but it turns out that I only used a uh, level one enchantment when really I should have used a level three containment spell. And, well, it appears that the damn goblin hybrid has made his way into my water pipes. Okay, um, I suppose that's something we could take a look at. Uh, could you, could I take your full name, please, sir? Oh, of course. <clears throat> I am the Wizard Fuzzberry, High Mage of Blue Mountains, Arc Warlock of the Circle of the Seven Sorcerers, Keeper of the Sacred Sword of Gorgazoroth, Guardian of Dudlington Doomstone, and last but not least, Sworn Protector of the Eastern Pixie Kingdoms of Packerpot. Hello, Stacy? Stacy, are you still there? Stacy? Oh, dear. Welcome to World Weary, a podcast for history and or mystery with two genuinely weary ladies. <laughs> There's a British one. She's called Violet Star. And I'm the American one, Cassiopeia Walker. Do we have a quick world-weary meter reading? Have you put your world-weary dipstick into the world-weary tank yet and seen what <laughs> oh, comes out on the end? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The end is... Uh... Gosh. No, I'm I'm at a new job. It's no longer the land of unemployment. So at least there's that. And that's, that's me. Done. Um, I tidied up my office study... Uh, which has been an absolute chaos mess for almost over a year. I'd say like it's been a year and two months. It's basically a, a physical manifestation of my depression <laughs> because <laughs> I'm normally, in, in the past anyway, for 30 years, I was able to sort of keep things fairly neat and tidy and then it all went wrong last year and I had just been living in an absolute like chaos cracked in pigsty and my study was like like just crazy it looked like a hoarder lived in here there were just boxes of crap everywhere and i just didn't literally did not tidy it for a year like i would push the vacuum around the carpet where there was space on the floor <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and just let it go mental and um i was like finally i need to tidy up it's taken me about like three months of like just doing little bits like once a weekend <laughs> of tidying mm. but i got there it's a tidy organized uh study again so that's been my excellent win 
of the week. Um, yeah, that's that. This week's world-weary topic was uh, what's in a name? I was like, that's that's an interesting one. We can find some stories about people with weird names or like cool nicknames. Lots to it. Yeah. And I had a few ideas. I flip-flopped around with like several historical characters, but then I decided to go with the country that I love in some ways more than my home country. It's of course a story from Japan. And I went back to the 16th century searching for a samurai with one of those super cool nicknames that we, you know, have definitely heard of. Um, Like, you know, know, uh, Johnny of the Thousand Strikes. Exactly. Those kind of names, like a cool warrior. The candle that never flickers. You know, (laughs) they always have like crazy, like (laughs) metaphorical names. Yes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, under siege, underwater. Yes. Yeah, I found did find some cool ones, um, but sadly, like a lot of them didn't really have much like story about them. They like, didn't pan out. There, there just wasn't very much meat on the bones because they like didn't live for very mm. long in most cases. Um, but there are all these people, sort of like the red demon of so and so, and so I settled finally on one of the greatest warlords in Japanese history, but outside of Japan, they're not very well known. Like in the West, lots of people know about um, Oda Nobunaga, you know, the uh, various like big daimyo samurai uh, figures, but this one isn't that well known. So I'm going to tell you about the life of Uesugi Kenshin, a.k.a. The Dragon of Echigo, which is a a cool nickname. How do you get a nickname like that? We're going to find out. So the story begins in the year 1530, and this is slap bang in the middle of the Sengoku period. So that's the famous uh, Warring States period of Japanese history. Oh, the best one, right? The best one. Everyone's angry at each other, literally sieging each other and shit <laughs> yes, like that. Yeah. It's the best. They'll be like outside the house, like, oh, our family has beef from 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of like, he no longer works for this warlord. He works for his rival. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It- I'm, I'm with, you know me. Yeah. We're, we're the same nerd. <laughs> <laughs> we all know it. Um, yeah, it's just every day, 24-7, fighting, violence, <laughs> sieges. <laughs> This is like the, in some ways... Making history. Yeah, it's like peak samurai as well. Um, so good. It's it's near constant civil war, massive social upheaval. It's just crazy and violent and chaotic. All of these clans uh, led by like samurai warlords are just like vying for control of all of these little territories of Japan fighting each other. And this story begins in the ancient province of Echigo. It's an ancient province. It doesn't really exist anymore, but it's kind of where modern-day Niigata Prefecture is in sort of northern central Japan. Our hero, Kenshin, 
He's the third or fourth son of a renowned warrior, Nagao Tamekage, who was the head of a samurai clan, the Nagao clan. Just kind of FYI, um, our hero, Kenshin, he isn't actually born with the name Uesugi Kenshin. He's originally named Nagao Kagetora. But as with many samurai and nobility from this time, his name changes like literally like 10 times during his life as he takes on various titles and, and whatnot. So just keep this simple for the, you know, purposes of being able to understand this quite complicated biography. We're just going to very informally and casually call him by his final first name of Kenshin. And also because um, I love the manga and anime uh, Ruroni Kenshin, or Samurai X is what it was called in the West. Um, so Kenshin's like a good, easy name to kind of remember. We can all follow the name Kenshin. So when Kenshin is six years old, his father is killed in battle, and Kenshin's eldest brother becomes the leader of the Nagao clan. And Kenshin is sent far away to a Buddhist temple in another province, where for seven years he will be educated and learn martial arts. He studies Zen Buddhism, and it seems that this has a lasting effect on him. He becomes a very devout spiritual person, especially in his adult life. And I think if circumstances had been different for him, he probably would have devoted his life to Buddhism and become, you know, a monk or something. Hmm. But that was not to be. Because at the tender age of 14, uh, Kenshin is contacted by some of his late father's old friends. They track Kenshin down at this faraway Buddhist temple. Word on the street is that Kenshin's eldest brother, the head of the Nagao clan, he's very sickly, he's got health problems, and because of this, he's not been the most effective leader, and now as a result, the Nagao clan's territory, so Echigo province, is kind of on the brink of collapse. It's going to be torn apart. So his father's friends urge the 14-year-old Kenshin to return to Echigo and contest his older brother's rule. But they're smart and they know that before he can do that, before he's ready to contest the leadership of the, the family samurai clan, he has to prove himself as worthy and, you know, as a good warrior and leader. So one of his dad's friends was part of another samurai clan, the Uesugi clan. They're kind of allies of Kenshin's clan. And the Uesugi clan were having a really hard time. They were being attacked by rebels. And so this family friend kind of pulled some strings and he gives Kenshin this sort of perfect training ground by giving Kenshin who's only 14, like going on 15, joint command of this strategically important castle that the Uesugi clan own. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying he's not trained. Um, all I'm saying is that is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. It's like a 15-year-old boy being given 
pulled out of a temple and being like, right, go defend this castle. I believe in Kenshin because, you know, I, f- I just have a feeling he's our hero. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, I'm glad he was training at a monk's temple yeah. and not at grandma's because, you know, otherwise we'd be really fucking worried yeah. right now. <laughs> this was any one of my, my, even my own brother I would not trust with a, uh, a castle <laughs> and an army. Yeah. So okay. it, I mean, it was kind of a clever, clever strategic choice in a way that this friend kind of used Kenshin, and Kenshin also gets to use this opportunity. But um, by putting this fourteen-year-old in command of a castle and kind of making it known, the rebels hear about this and they're gonna see this as an opportunity. Like. <laughs> You know, they're putting this 14-year-old in charge of the castle. Yeah, they're going to be like, this is no threat. We're going to take this 14-year-old, we're going to cut off his little 14-year-old head, and this castle's going to be ours. Bish, bash, bosh. Exactly. They see it as an opportunity, and so they go and attack the castle. But Oh, God. Here we go. Playing right into Uncle's hands. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, the samurai have... This is exactly what they want to happen. This is sort of part of their strategy. And... Kenshin, you know, he's had all this kind of martial arts training. He's now got the wisdom and advice of his father's friends. Um, So they probably give him a helping hand with this. But the story goes that Kenshin divides his troops at the castle into two groups. One group to defend the castle and the other uh, sneak off to go and raid the rebels' main camp. And the tactics work beautifully, and Kenshin is victorious. And so he successfully defends the castle, and he gets this reputation as this, you know, actually decent warrior and strategist. And a few years later, in 1548, his older brother um, steps down, and 19-year-old Kenshin is made the new head of the Nagao clan, and he's a great success. Uh, by all accounts, it just turns out that he's a, a natural when it comes to war and military strategy and being a, a samurai warlord. He's he's just an absolute natural oh, talent. He's one of those insufferable gamers, right? <laughs> just, oh, prick. So he gets his own castle, Kasugayama Castle, and he gets straight down to business, invading and expanding his territory. He's also still got this uh, allegiance or special relationship as a retainer of the Uesugi clan, his dad's friends. And in 1551, the lord of the Uesugi clan sends a message to Kenshin saying, look, shit is going down in my territory. Um, Another clan, the Hojo clan, they're attacking us. Please, can we flee to your castle? And so Kenshin is like, sure. I'll provide you with refuge, but on the condition that you adopt me as your heir. And just like that, Kenshin becomes both the head of the Nagao clan and heir to the Uesugi clan, and he'll get the title Lord of Echigo Province. And so that's why we know him by the name of Uesugi Kenshin, the dragon of Echigo, the dragon of Echigo province. Now, the dragon part comes from Kenshin's affinity for a Buddhist 
war deity called Akala, who is sometimes depicted as a dragon or as a god wielding these swords entwined with dragons. It's this, it harks back to his his Buddhist uh, spirituality and, and beliefs, but it's this wrathful Buddhist deity. And on the battlefield, Kenshin would fly these dragon battle flags that have um, the characters uh, Kakari Midareryu written on them. And Midare is like wild or warring, and Ryu is dragon. So it's like warring dragon. So you see all these warring dragon flags coming over the hill you're going to be intimidated, you know? So in 1552, Kenshin, he's approached by two lords from Shinano province, and they request his help in halting the advances of a formidable Takeda clan warlord called Takeda Shingen. And he's got the epic nickname, the Tiger of Kai, because he's from Kai province. The Takeda were invading land closer and closer to the borders of Echigo province, which is Kenshin's territory. And so Kenshin agrees to join these lords in this triple alliance against Takeda Shingen. And so begins a rivalry, so epic and intense that it became just legendary in the history of Japan. The rivalry of all rivalries. Uesugi Kenshin, the dragon of Echigo, versus Takeda Shingen, the tiger of Kai. So The tiger of Kai! so cool. <laughs> so you see like a tiger versus a dragon. You just know in local pubs and stuff, they had like paper doll dragons and tigers fighting each 100%. other. 100%. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. just right in front of a fire like, and then the tiger came. <laughs> <laughs> so these rivals they are equally matched in skill in intellect in leadership uh they're both like really genius battle strategists no matter how many times they fight no matter how many times they meet each other in battle no one could defeat the other every fight between them resulted in a draw and what adds even more epicness to their samurai rivalry, and this you're so right with this, Cassie, you've seen this, is that in Chinese mythology, which is, of course, especially influential and important in oh, Japanese yeah. culture, the dragon and the tiger are these eternally bitter rivals who try to ah, defeat yeah, one another. Right. Yeah, and they never can... N- neither is ever able to gain the upper hand. So... The dragon of Echigo and the tiger of Kai, these two That's samurai, so they are like the actual human embodiment of this ancient mythical it would have been rivalry. So hype. Can you imagine so if you're not even involved in the hype? I know. <laughs> it's so epic. So the dragon and the tiger would go on to fight five battles against each other. And the biggest, craziest battle occurred in 1561 at Kawanakajima. And the one-on-one fighting that occurred here between Kenshin and Shingen is remembered as one of like the most famous like instances or moments of 
combat in samurai history. Like there were there are so many famous like paintings of them like fighting each other. It's just iconic. At this battle, Kenshin uses a special formation for his army where he would switch out the soldiers on the front line with the soldiers at the back. Um, so as those at the front become exhausted or they become injured, you know, they bring in the ones from the from the back who haven't seen any action yet. Now, it is a risky move. There's a reason that, like, armies don't always use this tactic because when you're moving you know people from the front to the back that's a a moment of weakness um but in this case it proved to be extremely effective and because of it kenshin almost defeats takeda shingen's army kenshin also managed to ride up to takeda shingen himself so the dragon and the tiger actually met in battle with you know swords drawn and he slashes at takeda shingen with his sword and shingen tries to fend off the blows with his tessen or iron war fan it's exactly what you're thinking it's literally a a japanese battle fan so a fan you know yes. you used to to yes fan yourself but made of iron (laughs) it's sharp it's 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 if you come near them they can just yeah so glamorous a glamorous shield bring back battle fans you know i'll i'll freaking have a just i want people i really want them to ban all modern warfare stuff and go back to swords wouldn't you like this yeah let's go back to swords i love it Uh, so apparently Kenshin nearly kills him. He nearly gets a, a death blow in. But before he can finish Takeda Shingen off, um, Shingen is rescued by one of his retainers and, and dragged away. Shingen then makes a counterattack and Kenshin's army actually have to retreat. Although Kenshin's army technically retreated, the battle was considered to have been a draw. And this crazy battle is thought to have been, or to have had, the largest number of casualties of any battle from the entire Sengoku period. So this is the the craziest, most violent (laughs) battle period in Japanese history. And this was the battle of all battles, where like a shit ton of people died. Um, They estimate that 72% of Kenshin's army were killed and 62% of Takeda Shingen's army were killed. But Takeda Shingen also lost two of his most important generals in the battle, his chief advisor and his younger brother, who was basically like heir to the clan. So that evened, evened it out. Even after this super bloody battle, you'd maybe hope that the rivals would kind of call it a day for a bit, but oh no, they they have at least one more big battle, which once again ends without a clear victor. They just they just seem to like just smashing each other's armies up equally. And it, it was even said of these rivals that these two seem to have enjoyed meeting in battle. Like they didn't want to actually kill each other because then they wouldn't be able to fight each other again. They just actually loved, like, battling each other. This is the problem when you've got teenage boys in charge of armies. <laughs> They're out here playing games, you know? 
of course they don't want to kill each other necessarily. They're having a great time. It's true. It's classic because they should be on the same side and they'd really be winning. <clears throat> so they truly were uh, rivals rather than just straight up enemies. They had a very deep respect for each other. Uh, for example, there was an incident when Kenshin went out of his way to help out Takeda Shingen. So Shingen had been buying salt, a very important commodity back then, from the uh, the naughty old Hojo clan. But all of a sudden, the Hojo turn on him and they boycott his essential salt supplies. And when Kenshin hears of of this, he hears of, of Shingen's lack of salt, um, he gifts some salt to him from his own province. And Kenshin comments that the Hojo had performed a very mean act. And he said, I do not fight with salt, but with the sword. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Wow. So noble. And when Kenshin learns of Takeda Shingen's death in 1573, now this death was is completely unrelated to Kenshin. He didn't have anything to do with it. Um, Shingen died during a castle siege elsewhere in Japan. But Kenshin, on hearing the news, is reported to have wept and said, I have lost my good rival. We won't have a hero like that again. So they really, you know, they really respected each other. Hmm. Aside from the famous rivalry between the dragon and the tiger... Our dragon Kenshin was involved in a ton of other important ventures that have been a little overshadowed because the legendary rivalry story is just so good. In 1559, he made a famous trip uh, to Kyoto with an escort of 5,000 men just to pay homage to the, um, to the shogun. This served to heighten his reputation considerably. He is kind of like adding to his image um, as a man of culture, this cultured warlord. He was a very successful leader, very successful lord. He reformed trade, transportation, taxes. He just did a, a good job of running his province in like the most violent and chaotic times possible. He had this long-running campaign against the Hojo clan. He really battered them. He actually took a number of their castles, burnt down a load of their towns. Um, he massively expended, expanded his own territory. He took over, like, two other provinces, at least. Like, took over, like, all the adjacent provinces. If you imagine them as, like, kind of counties, like we have in the UK, you know... He, he that, that's a big area you know um yeah he controlled this entire stretch of sea that ran between the provinces so by the 1570s he basically was governing the whole of northern central japan and the seaboard just governing a massive chunk of the country and he this means he's super powerful at this point um also Fun fact, he was known to be a really heavy drinker, which in those times, for it to be like recorded this much as well in writing, if the, he's got to be yeah, 
plastered. Yeah, yeah. If they say you just were a heavy drinker back then, like you really were, like serious, serious drinker. He drank just pickled. Yeah, yeah. He drank every day apparently, and he was known like if he was having a meeting with some other lords, he would just drink all through the night through to the next morning. And he still managed to be an absolute boss. Like, he would just be, you know, someone would have to just pop him back on his horse and send him back out to, to the battle. to ask him, you know, if he needs another drink, but no one wants to ask him if he's okay. <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, talk about uh, a functioning alcoholic. Like, Jesus. he was winning. In 1577... Uh, Kenshin, he's in his like mid-40s by this point. He's now one of the biggest players in the whole Samurai Warlord game. And so he opposes Japan's most powerful and most famous warlord, Oda Nobunaga. And they go to war at the Battle of Tedorigawa. Kenshin's army of 30,000 are to go up against... Oda Nobunaga's 50,000 troops. And this isn't just any old 50,000 troops. This is 50,000 troops led by some of Japan's most famous generals at the time. So this is like a celebrity level, crazy epic army. Against such superior numbers, Kenshin had to use really clever tactics. And they kind of both the armies arrive at the the battlefield at night time there's a big river between them kenshin has to basically trick nobunaga's army and so what he does is he sends uh or he gets a bunch of his forces to start kind of marching off into the woods round the back and makes it kind of obvious. Uh, he's trying to make it look as if he's sending off some of his army to go and sneak behind Nobunaga's army and attack them from the rear. Which would obviously give Nobunaga the perfect opportunity to just quickly send his army forward over the river and obliterate what remains of Kenshin's army in the dark of night. And of course... Nobunaga takes the bait. Nobunaga's force, they attack that night, they're expecting this weakened opponent at the front that doesn't have its full full army there. But instead, it was all just like a trick. Kenshin's forces actually kind of ran straight back, um, regrouped. And so Nobunaga's forces unexpectedly meet in the dark with the Warring Dragon's full military might. Nobunaga actually ends up having to retreat and Kenshin's army is victorious and they go and they take over some of Nobunaga's land. So a real good, solid victory there. Kenshin then starts making plans to put together an even bigger, better army to continue invading Nobunaga's land. But before he could see his schemes realised, he dies, not in battle, but most probably from a disease or illness in the spring of 1578. So he would have been like 48 going on 49. The exact cause of Kenshin's death is a bit of a mystery. 
And there's some very interesting theories that have kind of developed from this that we're going to get into. Writings from the time do record his health deteriorating. Uh, apparently he kept complaining of a pain in his chest like an iron ball. He was suffering from terrible stomach aches and he also drank way too much alcohol. So that's a very likely a factor in this. Maybe he had stomach cancer. Can't imagine why. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe stomach cancer, something like that. However, in a historical chronicle written in the 1600s, so after Kenshin's lifetime, uh, Kenshin's death is recorded as resulting from uterine cancer. But that would mean that Kenshin had a uterus, right? No. And that brings me on to the famous theory <gasps> that Uesugi Kenshin might have been female. So... Yeah. <laughs> That's why she wept, because she was in love with the tiger. We can turn this into a crouching tiger hit a dragon. No. So in the mid-20th century, this Japanese novelist called Tomeo Yagiri was looking through historic records kept in a Spanish monastery, and they discovered this report on 16th century Japan written by a person named Gonzales of Spain, and the, the report had been sent to the Spanish King Philip II, in which Gonzales refers to Uesugi Kenshin with feminine pronouns and feminine titles. Also recorded in a Japanese war chronicle from the Sengoku period, so it doesn't get much more like legit than that, as from being from the actual time period that uh, Kenshin was around, is that Kenshin had severe cramps on a monthly basis and actually planned <laughs> their military campaigns around their cramps. <laughs> That's so cool. I know. Just like, oh, we got to plan our shit around my period, bro, because God. <laughs> According to some... That would be... <laughs> they never knew her greatest weakness. <laughs> but this is why you'd keep it a secret, right? You know? Um, according to some accounts of Kenshin's personal life... Kenshin had an interest in traditionally feminine subjects, um, such as historical novels, poetry, and calligraphy that was aimed at the female audience of the time. Kenshin's appearance was also reportedly very feminine. Uh, although, if you look at portraits from the Edo period, which is a long after Kenshin's lifetime, long after Kenshin died... Um, those those portraits try to reinforce the masculine battle warlord appearance. But if you look at portraits from the Sengoku period, the period when Kenshin was actually alive, oh my yeah, god, they display a very female appearance with fair skin, sort of clean shaven, long hair. Also. Kenshin was the only lord allowed to freely enter the women's quarters in the Kyoto Imperial Palace, where all the emperor's concubines hung out. So that's, you know, a very... Maybe it was like a don't ask, don't tell situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, she's obviously female, but no one's going to say anything because out of respect for everybody and the, what they've chosen, yeah. you know, she's obviously been made an heir 
and taking official names and stuff and she's so good at battle they're gonna turn a blind eye to all that and just sort of let it be kind of thing that's exactly the theory that's exactly this female theory that's what they think because that's what happens all the time if you look at the american civil war the more i research about it the more it comes out all these women that were involved and what it was it was just a don't ask don't tell sort of situation Mm. where yeah we obviously know you're a woman but as long as you play the part semi well no one's gonna call you out because we need you yeah like almost and that's a fucking truth because men will want to white like they'll want to basically wash it over and say that it was all men you know to get the glory but we know the fucking truth Mm -hmm. it was like an open secret maybe you know like yeah exactly don't say anything yeah otherwise she's gonna get you too uh kenshin and she's such a hero Kenshin was recorded as being celibate their whole life, which is really unusual. Um, I mean, yeah. Lesbian vibes! <laughs> um, with, like, being, like, a devout Buddhist, someone who was maybe interested in being a monk at one point, I guess it kind of uh, makes sense. That must probably but it's end. still really unusual. It's really unusual for someone who was the head of a clan, where it's important to, like, continue the clan. Um Kenshin is recorded as adopting two sons, but never had any biological children, never took a wife, or had good for her mm-hmm, or any concubines. So maybe she was asexual. Maybe. And you know, maybe she, you know. The other thing is that it's it's not unheard of for women to become the leaders of samurai clans during the 16th century. Uh, Just to name a few, there were women such as Tachibana Ginchio, Lady Otsuya, and Onamihime uh, were heads of their clans during this period. So it was not like... It's not like it was, like, unheard of or, like, that Japanese people would not have been okay with having someone female even in a sort of slightly disguised way you know the precedent is there basically so the discovery of this spanish letter combined with all of this information and the uterine cancer record led this novelist yagiri to write a book where they theorized that uesugi kenshin was a female sort of in disguise uh, as as a man there are, of course, a lot of critics of the theory. Um, they claim it would have been impossible for a woman to disguise herself as a man for so long, etc. <laughs> Enter lots of other historical figures. Yeah, I know, right? Um, and, you know, there are also voices that say, sort of, on the balance of things, maybe Kenshin was somewhere within the non-binary world or maybe a hermaphrodite or or something like that um but regardless the female theory has actually been embraced by modern japanese pop culture there's a lot of people who love this this theory and you can now find loads of portrayals it's the fun theory yeah um you can find loads of portrayals of uesugi kenshin as female or at least notably effeminate and I super recommend anyone who's into this to check out the 2007 NHK historical drama Furin Kazan, where Uesugi Kenshin is portrayed by the super beautiful, super famous, and almost androgynous uh, actor-singer-slash-songwriter Gakuto. He plays Kenshin with the female myth in mind, 
Um, so it plays this kind of slightly androgynous, very effeminate looking Uesugi Kenshin, who's still an absolute war badass. Uh, I highly recommend it. It was like a super highly praised performance when the drama came out. There were like mm. spin-offs and like a movie, I think. And Gakuto basically kind of owned the character of Uesugi Kenshin for like a decade or so because he just did such a great performance. So check out Furin Kazan uh, if you're interested. Finally, to end on something inspiring is... I've got some... There's so many great quotes that these samurai wrote. And, and said in their lifetimes. Um, the Jisei, or death poem, that Kenshin wrote. So uh, writing a death poem is like a custom that originated in Zen Buddhism. And in Kenshin's time in Japan, of course, it could only be practiced by uh, the literate class. So people who could read and write were like monks, samurai, nobility, basically. And the death poem was meant to be this farewell poem to life that you wrote knowing that you're going to die or in the face of certain death. And it's meant to be this expression of the acceptance of death and a look back at how you spent your time on earth. Basically a, a really fancy and beautiful way of recording your final words on your deathbed. You know, they turned it into an art, of course. And Uesugi Kenshin's death poem is this. Even a lifelong prosperity is but one cup of sake. A life of 49 years is passed in a dream. I know not what life is, nor death. Year in, year out, all but a dream. Both heaven and hell are left behind. I stand in the moonlit dawn, free from clouds of attachment. So... I just love that he mentioned mm. sake in his death poem, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know alcohol was a big part of his life. Um, and a final quote from Kenshin for general inspiration to get you through the week is the, the following. Fate is in heaven. Armor is on the chest. Accomplishment is in the feet. Always fight with your opponent in the palm of your hand and you won't get wounded. If you fight willing to die, you'll survive. If you fight trying to survive, you'll die. If you think you'll mm. never go home again, you will. If you hope to make it back, you won't. While it is not incorrect to consider the world uncertain, as a warrior, one should not think of it as uncertain, but as totally certain. Good, good advice. So yeah, mm. that's the story of Uesugi Kenshin, the dragon of Echigo. Pretty good. It's, it's got everything. No. Or mine's going to be a little petty, petty trip into science, I guess. Um, let's bring it up. So have you ever heard of, you must have, Carl Linnaeus? The name rings a bell. Okay, so Swedish botanist came up with the... Um, way we name plants now okay right so he's the one that basically you know when you hear the whole like um you know farticus maximus you know and that means like some kind of <laughs> like the, plant, the latin right? like names of plants and stuff like the yeah, species exactly. category okay cool cool so he's like always sent to sweden to classify plants and animals um and he would collect all these things and publish it he's like a uh Pliny of the 1700s. 
Okay. You know? So, he's well thought of, you know, um, philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau sent him a message, quote, tell him I know no greater man on earth. Uh, (laughs) Johann Wolfgang von Goth wrote, with the exception of Shakespeare and Spinoza, I know no one among the no longer living who has influenced me more strongly. High praise. You know, uh, he's, he's, he's been called the Prince of Botanists. The Pliny of the North is one of his titles. <laughs> I love Prince of Botanists. Um, that that needs to be yeah. brought back in some way. Someone, uh, uh, a Swedish author, August Strindberg, wrote, Linnaeus was in reality a poet who happened to become a naturalist. <laughs> right? So people are really sucking this wow. guy's dick. Right? They love so him. So flattering. All right. And they will not disappoint you. Okay? So... Uh, his Systema Naturae, The System of Nature, was published um, with financial support from his friend Jan Granovius, the senator of Leiden, and a Scottish physician. It's um, Basically, it shows taxonomy, the three kingdoms of nature, stones, plants, and animals, and each of these is divi- subdivided into classes, orders, genera, species, variety, and the hierarchy of taxonomic ranks replaced traditional systems of biological classification that were based on mutually exclusive divisions or dichotomies, and his classification system survived in biology, though um, there have been um, things added since to accommodate the growing number of species as we learn more about science. Mm-hmm. So um, fun fact, one time, you know, he was always sending people on things. You know how these people were. They're naturalists and they're always sending people yeah, this, that and the other. One of his friends, Christopher uh, Tarnstrom, um, was a 43-year-old pastor with a wife and children. He made his journey over to help him out and in 1746 and boarded a Swedish East India Company ship headed for China, however, he never made it. He died of tropical fever um, on Concern Island the same year. And so his widow actually blamed Linnaeus for making her children fatherless. And oh this would have what happened after this is um, after you get that. So Linnaeus would always send out the younger single men to uh, <laughs> all these dangerous expeditions after uh. he learned his lesson. So after ten, two years after this expedition, um, so he's sending these apostles to various places. So he sends Finnish-born Pierre Calm as the second apostle to North America. And they spent two and a half years studying the flora and fauna of Pennsylvania, um, New York, Jersey, Canada. And Linnaeus was overjoyed when they returned, bringing back all these pressed flowers and seeds. And 90 of the 700 species, you know, have been brought back by Calm. So all the things to do with modern te- uh, taxonomy are created by this guy. And... Um, so he came up with these two Latinate systems of naming that we're familiar with. But you would think um, that this kind of person would be above and beyond being petty violent. <laughs> you'd think. But you'd be you'd be wrong, actually. But I don't think you would be wrong because you know how these people operate. So, of course, um, Linnaeus, it, Carl is, is an asshole, right? So anybody that he doesn't like or he feels insults him, he names after disgusting plants, right? <laughs> oh, that's so brilliant okay, so, and petty at the same time. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would do. He, it, so he invented the system and it was years later because of 
uh, something I'm going to tell you in just a moment. Like, so the reason why there are rules to the system and how you can name now and how they're very careful and they will not let you name insult, like use it as an insult to other people is because of him himself. <laughs> so he got away with it when he was alive because he made the system and the everyone OG. was sort of cheering him on. Yeah. Um, but after he was dead, people were like, okay, we need to stop naming it like, you know, Carl's naming it Tom shit, shit weed over here. And we can't shittiest, weedest Thomas is not going to fly. So <laughs> so, um, all right. So a member of the stinkweed family oh, described as small and useless was named in honor of Johann Seigsbeck. He and Linnaeus have been rivals with Seigsbeck frequently criticizing Linnaeus' work. <laughs> the current rules of scientific naming same state you can't give a name to an organism you discover if it's meant harmful or insulting to someone else. But Linnaeus came up with a system, as we discussed, and it was not in place. So uh, no one really <laughs> adheres to those rules anyway. That's why we have the Trump moth, you know. Mm. Um, Carl's father was actually um, the first. I think this is where it comes from. He, His father was the first of his ancestry to adopt a permanent surname. So before that, all their ancestors had used patronymic naming system of Scandinavian countries. So his father's named Ingemarsson after his father, Ingemar Bangsson. And when Nils was admitted to the University of Lund, he had to take on a family name. So he adopted the Latinate name Linnaeus after a giant linden tree, um, linden Swedish, that grew on the family homestead. So the name was spelled with the A.E. ligature, so when he was born, he was named Carl Linnaeus with his father's family name. Yeah. So this is where it all sort of begins, right, I believe. So uh, Linnaeus became sort of like uh, naturalists everywhere were just like have to constantly address him and his work because he came up with this, right? So he's always getting referenced, right? He He's basically the reference man. Right. And the rules of nomenclature that he put forward in the Philosophia Botanica rests on the recognition of the law of priority quote. The rule basically states that the first properly published name of a species or genus takes precedence over all of our proposed names. So as soon as it's published, that's yours. It doesn't matter if someone else discovered it first. They published it. So you got to be quick on the game, you know. And these rules are firmly established in the field of natural history and form the backbone quote, of international codes of nomenclature, such as the Strickland Code, 1842, for fields of botany and zoology in the mid-19th century. So the first... Um, oh, and by the way, he's, like, super religious, okay. of course. Um, so in Divine Retribution, which is a manuscript that sort of explores the notion of divine retaliation, it details that... All the bad things that happened to the people in Linnaeus's eyes that misbehaved or committed offenses against him. So this motherfucker had an entire book <laughs> that he secretly kept that wasn't brought out till after he died about how bad things happened to bad people who were mean to him. He's a crazy man. Oh my god! So this he's is a like... crazy man. He thinks ju God is looking after him. He names all the plants like he's Jesus. This is right. He's God. He's naming the plants. Mean girls with the mean girls like evil book. This he is a skank. <laughs> he cannot be trusted. <laughs> Skank bitch. Um, so yeah, and he's basically has this burn book, um, but it's a religious burn book that is divine. Like so, oh, he, this guy's gone full. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I wanted to talk. So he's crazy and he creates a system. But I want to talk about a 19th century paleontology 
when it's basically, I, I, I know you would say it's just a, it's basically, you know, pretty sexy time for paleontology, I think, in the 19th century. Oh, yeah. you know, everything's being, you know, science is, is happening. People are discovering things. Um, rivalries are forming. Mm-hmm. That's another, you know, today's all about I rivalries. Know, right? Okay. What a coincidence. Um, two paleontologists, let me know if you know them. Uh, O.C. Marsh and Edward Cope. I can't say I do. Ever heard of these assholes? Okay, so Marsh discovered a mosasaur. Ooh. One of the uh, big so uh, marine monsters. Yeah, like a sea Yeah, dino. yeah, you got it. And um, it made it, you've seen it in Jurassic uh, World. It's the thing that's swimming around and it's that big one. Um, he named it Mosasaurus copianus. And um, it's one of the most stupid but clever insults because... So Copianus sounds scientific, right? Mm-hmm. But okay, so his rival is named Edward Cope, <gasps> and the second word is anus. Oh, I was about to say the anus bit. I was like, mm, you could so play he some tricks with that. So he this giant sea monster, um, <laughs> Cope anus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're so petty. Uh, but it's brilliant. It was clearly used as a disguise uh, to disguise Marsh's dig at his rival with a butt pun. Okay, <laughs> so it's been argued that this was meant as a friendly gesture, but of course, I don't think it was taken as that. Um, so Cope had been naming named one discovery like in honor of Marsh, right? At the time, he didn't realize he had named something Cope anus after him, and so. Obviously, these things get published. You don't necessarily grab the magazine or yeah. whatever um, or the publication right away. So Marsh finds out about this after naming something quite nicely for Cope, right? Um, I think it was the... Uh, so so he basically named something and, and Cope's like, well, fuck, man. Like, um, this is when the friendship deteriorates. It becomes from like a friendly rivalry to, wow, you really try... Because this is a publication. Mm. You're actually trying to make fun of me. And you're trying to be real cute here. It's not obvious. It's it's like, you know, so Marsh goes behind Gope's back and steals fossils from a site Cope had discovered. <laughs> oh, great. And he knows the rule is that if he publishes this motherfucker first, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. So Cope's basically annihilating their friendship with this move. <laughs> right. So after this Marsh insult with the Mosasaurus Copanus, <laughs> he wasn't going to back down. Okay. He already knows everybody hates him. So he the next cons- discovery is this hoofed animal. And he calls it the Anisonchus Cofeter. And the name here is... a uh, um, uh, This is Marsh coming after Cope again. The name is a melding of Cope and Hater. Oh, wow. This is, <laughs> this is such a highbrow insult. You He's know such what a I hater. Mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It's such like nerd, like, I'll come at you. And then think about the scientific community, <laughs> like, watching this with popcorn, oh, right? Yeah. And he told his protege that there was no Greek derivative for that name. It was just a clear shot at all the haters who surrounded him. <laughs> so he's saying this one goes out to my haters, oh. right? Um, People haven't changed, it, it, have they? They really haven't. This is this is um, possibly the first real call out to somebody's haters in history. <laughs> so, like, this one goes out to my haters. So, I think rap artists really need to have a line about cope and Marsh. Yeah, like you could even say like you're just trying to cope by insulting me, you know, mm. in a bar. You know what I mean? And then scientists would know. I'm just saying it's there for the picking. People might, it might go over most people's heads, but for the sign, you know, for the very few. For the intellectual rappers Snoop Dogg, call me. Yeah. Um, 
So, Megan the Stallion, please call me. Okay, so... So, Marsh discovers the blender after it had already been published in American Philosophical Society Journal. The embarrassment was incredible. <laughs> okay. And he'd already found another species assembled the fossil incorrectly, and he put the head on the tail, right? So, it's just hit after hit, right? <laughs> you know, and they... And so finally, um, the feud gets to this point where it's drawing to this, you know, climax. Um, so they, another scientist named Copeter. So, okay. So a hundred years later, it's sort of like they go at each other, but there's not really, you know, they just, it just is what it is. So anyway, um, in 1978, uh, Lee Van Halen, a fan of the famous feud, many years later, it's a hundred years later, um, names the oxycodone marsh hater. So uh. he basically is trying to help Marsh. Um, they died in the 1800s, so they, they couldn't enjoy it. But he did um, name uh, a hoofed beast called Marsh Hater <laughs> for, on behalf of Marsh. Um, Marsh is considered the shittier of the two men. He tried to destroy Cope's career. He accused him of misusing government funds to buy fossils. I mean, this was the, the era of paleontology is insane, Violet. Mm -hmm. Paleontologists at this time, and this is like one of the least controversial situations, right? Um, Cope had paid for his collection, but he spent, and he'd spent years digging up dirt on Marsh. All right. And then he would release it to the press. Right. In scandals. And Marsh lost his job, his funding, his fossil collection, everything. Um, uh, after, you know, after accusing Cope of so long, you know. Mm -hmm. So basically Marsh ended up fucking himself over. Um, but that's what he gets. Because, of course, Marsh is the one calling things like Copeater and Cope Anus. He's the one who started all this shit. Right. Yeah. And Cope is just trying to fucking cope with it all. He's just trying to deal. So usually Marsh is looked at as the one who was the instigator and all this stuff. Um but yeah, it's very much a back and forth. Uh, but yeah, this this is what happens when even the most simplest of rules, like okay, the whole publishing rule, caused all this bullshit. Wow! And it comes from a petty ass bitch, um, that Carl. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it's funny. It's just like they don't want women in the scientific field because they probably would stop this fucking nonsense. Mm. Possibly, you know. They'd be weeping and having time off for their periods before battles and stuff. And then <laughs> Man, I love, no. I love hearing about people squabbling and fighting back in the day, especially like yeah. in such a nerdy field, you know, like botany or dinosaurs. It's always the nerdy shit that they always have to like yeah. st have stupid fights over. It's crazy you know I mean? as well. Like whenever you, whenever a new like genre is kind of being born or like a new thing uh or a new enterprise that you get this like very quickly this very like aggressive like i have to stamp everyone else down in order to make a name for myself it's kind of like the 90s were for like that sort of like weird aggressive nowadays things feel a little bit more cooperative like we're kind of going through a peaceful phase where it's sort of like helping each other out to all become successful uh but 
yeah, there was very much, I'm getting the, that 90s aggressive vibe from <laughs> these people. Like, they'll, like, <laughs> just burn everyone else around them in order to make a name yeah, for themselves. Yeah, what is up with the 90s feeling like this really dark, seedy time? Yeah. You know what I mean? Aggressive. It always felt like, <laughs> yeah, in the night, that whole, yeah, it just felt like whenever mm, I talk, a gross time period. Yeah, whenever I talk to people who are kind of, like, coming up in the 90s, mm-hmm. or... It was horrible. Yeah, it, people always just talk about this kind of like super aggressive is the vibe yeah just shitting on everyone else and fighting everyone else in order to become successful yourself no matter what field you were in that was just the general anarchy Mm -hmm. vibe of the 90s and uh i'm feeling that this was a kind of a 90s everyone pretending (laughs) that everything's perfect on the surface and you know what i mean 80s felt a little more grounded in reality like everyone looks crazy but they're very real yeah and then the 90s was the opposite where they all look very normal but it was seedy and there's this underbelly feeling it's like going to church you know and knowing what's really underneath those people that was what the 90s were to me and i didn't like it when i felt very unsettled in the 90s as a kid it just all felt very gross yeah and uh scary in a way yeah i don't know i, I would agree a very weird decade <laughs> a weird decade for sure but yeah i feel like they were having their 90s moment you know that that really aggressive yeah shit on each other in order to make it big mm. kind of attitude yeah oh really interesting there you go two rivalries yeah i'm gonna have to think of like a rivalry uh name now for this episode you know i love it when we come up with like as once again we we, we come up with parallel stories uh even though the topic was like names you know brilliant (laughs) that way that world weary wave wavelength can't be um underestimated so guys uh hope you enjoyed this episode do go over to our website worldwearypodcast.com you can find our diary page we have links on there to like sources and interesting articles that we might have used to research these stories you can also find links to our socials on there we're on twitter and we're on instagram at worldwearypod and worldwearypodcast again that's socials that you can find on our website you can also find a link to our patreon page massive thank you to our supporters there especially our cryptid commanders diamond grendel thank you so much literally have like kept the boat afloat on the world weary sea this whole time and yeah is there anything else you want to plug do you want to plug your twitch oh yeah tasara 22 t-a-s-a-r-a 22 and just tasara on hive and if you want to see uh, things I find in my job as an archaeologist and other uh, photos and stuff that I post, I've got a personal Instagram, which is violet underscore superstar. And that's star with two R's on the end. Again, you'll be able to find it like through some of our Worldberry podcast stuff as well if you have trouble. Um, that's where you can find us. Tarot time? Yep. Uh, so today we've pulled the uh, Page of Pentacles in reverse. So if if Page of Pentacles is sort of like a, a good omen for like your funds coming in clinch or whatever, well, I feel like reverse is like about mm, uh, st- stalling, right? Like it's a procrastination thing. It's a 
it's a uh, it's things aren't where you would like them to be that's for sure it's not like a super negative card but it's definitely something to think about you got to think about where you're feeling maybe yourself and the situation yeah that you're thinking about especially if it's coming to finances right now where are you feeling it's probably going to be com- um, improved because you're at the page level right now you're thinking about things you're aware of things but yeah it's definitely a stalling it's a, a failure thing but it's a um something you're thinking about you're not just letting it go by you you're not just feeling miserably for no reason there's there's something some inaction that's causing failure and you've got to evaluate that that's how i usually interpret it yeah yeah it's you know or maybe it's just like uh you know like you're not ready for something yet like yeah you're you're waiting you're holding up yeah and like you know thinking about preparation time you know Mm. it it, you could definitely put a good spin on this one where it's like actually give yourself some more time to, to figure this out properly you know yeah but yeah, it's always like a, it's always like a, for me, it's like, uh, if there's forward movement, page of pentacles reverses uh, a quick stop. Mm. It's like, wait a second. You know what I mean? It's um, for whatever reason. So, and it's usually financial or creative, right? Yeah. Maybe you're coming up against a roadblock in your creativity and maybe that's good. Maybe you need to take a second. And that's what the page sort of reminds us. Of. It's always a message, right? Yeah. It's always like, hey, by the way, listen, you know, listen. Mm. So yeah good uh guys come back next week for another episode of well Road podcast bye, bye.